You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, September 18th, 2019, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santa Maria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. I love science. Thank you. <laughs> I'm happy for you. Evan, <laughs> what you. if I told yeah. you uh-huh. that mathematicians used a planetary computer in order to find the question, the correct answer to which is the number 42. Oh, yeah, boy. Um, let's see. That's a darn good book and you're reading. And this really happened. No, this is real life. This oh. really happened. Re- okay. We've gone from fiction to reality. All it's, right. It's real. It's true. I know Kara's heard about this because she tweeted about it, but you guys heard mm-hmm. this? Yeah. Awesome. Some of the three cubes, baby. Yeah, some of the, some <laughs> of the three cubes. <laughs> Do you I don't know what that? the hell you're talking about. I mean, I recognize the 42 and everything, but this is a real news item? Yeah, this is real. So in 1954, at the University of Cambridge... Uh-huh. I've heard of that. Yeah, so the mathematicians proposed this, what's called the Diophantine equation. It's uh, x cubed plus y cubed plus z cubed. So sum of three cubes equals k. Right. And they wanted to solve that for all numbers from 1 to 100. And they did, except yep. for two, the number 33 and the number 42. Right. However, recently, they solved it for 33, which left 42 as the only number, the only integer between 1 and 100 for which... There was no answer. There was no, there was no answer, right? There was no sum, sum of three cubes that added up to the number 42. Right, so you needed a distinct number multiplied by itself three times and add that to a, yet another distinct number, different from the first one, multiplied by itself three times, plus a third one. It has to be an integer, right? Now, why, why is this important? It's one of it's those fun. math problems, yeah. <laughs> so it was recently solved by, by mathematician Professor Andrew Booker at MIT. It's kind of a funky solution because the three numbers are all huge, but one of them is negative. So I guess it like almost oh. balances out except for four, a residue of 42. Well, that seems like it took them an awfully long time to nail this particular one down. Yes. You're saying 1954 is when this yep. was started? Yeah. yeah. And they did use a quote-unquote planetary or worldwide computer. They used one of those, those uh, engines where it's called the charity engine, where it basically uses 500,000 PCs around the world. Uh, Hence the planetary computer. Yeah. Neat. Okay, kind of what's similar to what SETI does with their project. Yeah, Yeah, it's like a computing at home app, yeah. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait. Those are huge numbers. Yeah, I know, but (laughs) I just said that, Bob, but one of them is negative. (laughs) But wait a second. If K equals equals 1 to 100, and Mm -hmm. uh, the the one that they're solving for is 42, how are you going to cube those big numbers Bob. Oh, because of the negative. The <laughs> negative. He's a mathematician from because MIT. You got to trust him on this. Yeah, yeah. They're just negative. adding them together. So you add a big negative number to two slightly smaller positive numbers. And the, yeah, it adds up to 42. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. Because I, I had the same reaction. Like, wait a minute. These numbers are huge. Like, oh, the first one's negative. The negative. Yeah. yeah. The negative. <laughs> negative will do cool. that. So uh, that's fascinating. Yes, it is. Now, that that provokes the question, is mm-hmm. this a coincidence, or did Douglas Adams know this 
Did he pick the number 42 because he knew about this? Because he knew 33 and 42 were the two outstanding numbers at the time that he wrote Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? I doubt it, Evan. I doubt it. Because they've been, uh, I I think, I mean, that was many, many years ago. It was like in the 70s that he he did that. And I think some of these have been solved since then. So, you know, and uh, and some of them are actually weren't. Uh, some of them s- decided they were unsolvable. They, they they do mention that in the article where some of them were just like like seventy one. That sorry, that's been that's been shown to be unsolvable. So they they know they didn't have to work on that one anymore. Um, but they didn't go into any detail how many were unsolvable. So I looked up what the origin of forty two was in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, mm-hmm. and the answer is forty two. <laughs> Nobody knows. Except Stephen Fry. So there is an answer. Uh, but Douglas Adams never, only told Stephen Fry, and he, of course, died. I'm um, dubious. Douglas Adams it passed away at the age of 49. Sad day. And, yeah, uh, no. and Stephen Fry has promised to take that secret to his grave. Wait, now, why would he do said, that? Contr- I'm sorry. I, who I'm, said I'm that he only told Stephen Fry? Did Douglas Adams say that or did Stephen Fry say that? Right. Is this part know. of a skit? Or a I don't yeah, that's good. He could be totally making Because Stephen shit Fry up. could just say that. Say, so I know, but I'm not telling anybody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that was confirmed. <laughs> but uh, so apparently that will, be, that will be a mystery. He did not want to reveal to the world where he got 42 from. That's probably fine. Because like that. he just made uh, well, it up. Right. Yeah, right. I mean, that could it's probably be the just answer. a non-story. It's like, oh, just 42. I like it because you think, you know, think of something yourself. It doesn't, you know, it would kind of detract from it if it was some mundane source of that he got 42 from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, sure. But at the same time, it's not this international mystery that, you know, must be solved, I don't think. Well, or and, the, the and I, is- I suspect that Adams wanted it to be, it's kind of meta. It is a mystery, right? The number, it, the, the, yeah. or, the origin of the number itself in the Hitchhiker's Guide itself is a mystery. Yeah, Evan, I feel like you may be underestimating the nerdiness of nerds a little bit. Mm-hmm. Oh, jeez. Mm, okay. All right. And aren't they, are they wrong about this whole idea of the planetary computer? Because Deep Thought designed the planetary computer, otherwise known as Earth. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah, this is just, just, it's just a metaphor. They're just trying to make as much of a, of a connection as possible. I know. In, in the Hitchhiker's Guide, the computer was Earth. The whole Earth was the computer. Yeah, right. Deep Thought, this is just Deep Thought a designed it. Worldwide yeah. distributed computer network. Yeah, but they. My point is that they bring up Deep Thought, and mm-hmm. it wasn't Deep Thought. Oh, they're, yeah, they're making an error in the reference. Well, Deep Thought came up with the answer forty-two. Right, and the, the Earth planned was created Earth was coming to come up, up for with what the question, question was. You know, <laughs> yeah. when, you, when you're coming up with a really epic question, you, uh, or, you know, you better think it out a little bit. And what was the question? What is six times eight? <laughs> yeah, how many paths was a, how many paths must a person take? I don't know. I forget. It's been so long. It's, it's it's due for another listen of Douglas Adams reading his Hitchhiker series. According only, to Bob, that is the, the only the only way. way yeah, the best way. I'll put I it this agree. way: the best way to enjoy that series. You I could agree. read it, read the words, fine. You could listen to Stephen Fry. I think Stephen Fry and some really awesome people narrate. Those books, and they're good too, but nobody is like Adams reading his own work. And he was just a wonder, as you can imagine, he was a fantastic narrator. All right, Jay, you and I have to uh, go and hang out with Stephen Fry and knock a few back and get him to loosen up so that he spills the secret. What do you think? <laughs> I, I would think about more about threatening to kill him if he doesn't tell the world. I mean, this oh, is geez. a big deal. <laughs> Very aggressive, Jay. I mean, it's the answer. You know what I mean? It's the, it's, 
it's too big. It's too important for just one man to carry the weight. <laughs> I can't fathom the fact that we've been talking about this for 10 minutes straight mm. at this point. <laughs> what do you want to talk about, polio? Well, polio. Jeez, yeah, sorry. <laughs> On to more pressing matters. Yeah. All right, Kara, tell us about, about polio. polio. Go ahead. Oh, gosh. Well, I'd like to say that the polio virus saga has been, I think in many ways, a real testament to um, biomedical science. And we've talked about this before on the show. I feel like we might hit it like once a year, something like that, Mm -hmm. um, because I'm always really interested when there are new developments. And so the newest development in the conversation about poliovirus is that there is a new vaccine being designed right now that could help with the remaining cases that exist. So let's do like a little quick and dirty background. So poliomyelitis is caused by the polio virus. And there are three different types of wild type poliovirus. There's wild type one, two, and three. But there's also a type of um, poliovirus that's a vaccine derived poliovirus. And it typically comes um, from wild type two within the vaccine. So so currently, globally, there are two types of polio vaccines. You guys have heard of the Salk vaccine. That was the first one that was developed, I think, in 1955, if I'm not mistaken. And that is an injection. And then there's an oral polio virus vaccine, which was developed like six year, five or six years later. And the difference between the two is that the injection has killed virus in it and the oral virus is um, attenuated. So that's like a weakened virus. The oral virus seems to be more effective in single dose, like you usually need more than one dose of the injectable virus. Um, And it's also easier to administer than, you know, having to have the needles for the injectable virus. So the oral virus tends to be used more worldwide. The problem is, every so often, People who take the oral virus will actually, they'll be populated with polio virus, um, you know, but it's, it's weakened polio virus. It won't make them sick, but it'll undergo mutations in the GI tract. And by the time they kind of poop the virus out into the community, into the water or into the soil, it may, on very, very, very rare occasions, have actually mutated and be able to be virulent again. And so there are actually a number of cases of polio worldwide, which are caused by this vaccine-derived polio um, because of this attenuated virus. And I think I have a list here of of the numbers we're looking at right now. So... This year today, as of this week, um, this is as of September 11th, so that's the most recently published um, numbers. Globally, there are, uh, were, are 78 cases of wild-type poliovirus. That's amazing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can we just take a minute to think about how incredible that is? Yeah, I never realized I'm, that there was that many independent versions of it. I mean, are they all as deadly as the next? So they are – I don't – I actually don't know if um, one, two, and three vary in terms of their effects. Because the thing about polio is that talking about whether or not it's deadly is very individual. Like most people who actually contract polio don't even show symptoms. 
a, a percentage of people who contract it show flu-like symptoms, and only I think one in two hundred people that contract it will have neurological symptoms. And so when we think of like the most dev- devastating aspects of polio, like we we you know we think of like images of the iron lung and people you know on crutches, that's a very very small percentage of people who even contracted the virus. But I'm not really sure if type one, type two, type three um, actually have any sort of difference in effect. I do know that type two is fully eradicated in the wild. So what a lot of people thought about doing is actually figuring out how to remove type two from the uh, vaccine altogether because of the risk of the wild type or of the um, uh, vaccine derived. And we'll get to this new development in just a second. But so 78 people globally with wild type virus, all 78 are only in three countries. These are the endemic polio virus countries, Nigeria, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. And then 72 so far this year cases of um, circulating vaccine derived poliovirus. And that's in 15 of them are in those endemic countries, but in a full 57 of them are in non endemic countries. And so that's where the real fear comes out, um, is that this spreads more. Also, there are a lot of countries where polio has been eradicated for so long that people aren't getting vac- vaccinated. Yeah, that's scary. Yeah, so that's a real risk, right? So these research researchers were like, okay, what do we do? How do we keep this type 2 that's in the oral vaccine from becoming virulent again? And they did a bunch of research, and they realized that there's four different things that seem to happen in order for the vaccine to kind of uh, mutate and revert to becoming virulent. There were 104 polio cases last year just due to the type 2 poliovirus uh, circulating. And actually, periodically, some of those cases did lead to paralysis. As I was saying, the, the things that they had to do, the steps that they had to take are kind of complicated. Um, but there were four important changes that were made. One of them prevents it from folding up into the appropriate protein shape that it can do on its own um, in order to become revirulent. Another one involved changing the enzymes within the vaccine that actually copy the RNA so that um, when it makes a copy of itself, it's more accurate and it's less likely to mutate. The third change is that they... Um, I'm not really sure how they did this, but they were able to reduce... Oh, it's through the same enzyme that they use to change the way um, that it copies its RNA. It actually prevents, or not prevents, but reduces its uh, recombinatory capability. So it's less likely to recombine with other viruses that are already populating the person who took the vaccine. And then lastly, the actual attenuated virus in the vaccine... Um, had its genetic material kind of rearranged a bit so that regions of RNA, if it were to combine with a different wild virus, would actually kill it instead of allowing it to be a new mutant. So, for example, a lot of people in these countries are also carrying other gut viruses. It's not uncommon. Um, one of the ones that they mention, and I don't really know anything about this, Steve, is Coxsackie. Mm-hmm. Coxsackie virus. Yeah. So apparently a lot of kids carry Coxsackie virus, especially in these regions where this is a concern. And what sometimes happens is that the attenuated polio virus 
will actually combine with portions of the Coxsackie virus, and that's how it'll mutate to become virulent again. But this change actually makes it so that when it tries to combine, it actually kills the virus, which is great. So they've tested this so far in cells, they've tested it in a mouse model, and they've also done a phase one clinical trial, which we talked about a lot last week. So that showed that they were uh, did not make people sick. They're pretty well tolerated. The immune response is there. So the, the vaccine is working. Unfortunately, it didn't completely eradicate the reversion to virulence, but it did reduce it compared to the original oral vaccine. So that's a really good sign. So long story short, this is what happens at the end of an eradication effort. I mean, I think it's fair to say, or, or when you're doing really well in an eradication effort, when this started in 1988, we saw a 99% reduction in rates. It might have even been like 99.9 or 0.8%. We went from thousands of cases, uh, maybe even tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of cases, down to 100 cases a year. It's incredible. Um, but now that we're we're playing whack-a-mole trying to f- get rid of these last few cases because once it's fully eradicated, it's gone. Yeah. Only humans carry this virus. There's no reservoir. So it it's can amazing. be eradicated. Unlike not every virus can be eradicated. Yeah. Unlike Ebola or something, which yeah. is living in, in, you know, bats yeah. or rats yeah. or whatever. I mean, it, it would still exist in laboratories and yeah, 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 yeah. contained but like, areas. Like is smallpox eradicated? Yes, but smallpox exists in labs. Yeah, exactly. So it's like eradicated from the human population, but it might still be in vials. Um, And that's, you know, that's necessary, right? In case if something did happen Um, or in case if we detected a virus that was somewhat similar. It's a debate. There's a debate about whether or not we should get rid of Mm -hmm. any stored virus once it's eradicated because then it's gone from the world. There's no possibility of an accident or theft or whatever. Um, so that's that's an open question, actually. Interesting. Yeah, it, I mean, it's an interesting Trivial. question, too. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, there's something to be said for imagine if, like there there is no smallpox virus in the world. They can't possibly come back. Big, t- big deal. But, they're going to be creating – they'll be creating uh, viruses and infections that are never existed in nature that are a thousand times more they? virulent. The bad people. <laughs> oh, the bad people. The bad people. people. But I mean, what happens, Steve, and I'm sure obviously this is part of the conversation, if a cowpox virus or some other type of pox does crop up that is genetically somewhat similar to smallpox, and if we still had those smallpox stores, we would be able to, you know, fast track um, vaccine research. I think that's probably the argument for keeping things is that a lot of viruses are somewhat similar. And it's so frustrating because we were so close like 10 years ago, but it was... The anti-vaccine fears that kept it going. We missed our chance, and now we're trying to recreate it. And I mean, we're still, but let's be clear, we're still so close. Yeah. Like, we're very close. We're talking only 150 cases so far this Uh, year. But that's so many more than there was when we we were close last time. And it's just, yeah, close doesn't really count. We got to get over that finish line until it's eradicated, you know, because then we still have to keep up vaccinating everybody, et cetera. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, once it's eradicated, we don't have to get the vaccine anymore at yeah, all. Right. That's amazing. So, yeah. That'd all right. We'll keep pushing. Yep. yep. And who knows? Maybe eventually we'll be able to reverse aging. Right, Jay? Oh, God. Really? That's a whole other conversation we will not be having right no, now. Yes, we actually, are we are it. having it right now. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're just, Jay, I'm going to have to keep my mouth shut this whole time. You could, you know, if you want to die, Kara, it's going to happen. So don't worry about it. You'll, you'll die. I thank you. That's a very that's, enlightened that's a, perspective. <laughs> but for those of us who don't think that a scant, you know, sixty to eighty years is quite enough, because it isn't. Um, sixty. 
So look, I'll start off by saying that this is a, a very early, early, early small study. Um, there are a couple of things about about this news item worth really digging into, but everything else, we just need a ton more research done before we could actually say anything definitive. But according to a recent study, it seems that a certain combination of drugs was able to reverse the test subject's biological age, and that is a key term in the sentence, uh, which they determined examining changes to their DNA, right? So they're looking at these test subjects' DNA. So let's get into the details. The study was published on September 5th, 2019 in the journal Aging Cell, and it consisted of nine healthy white males between the ages of 51 and 65. Now, three times a week, the test subjects had to administer a combination of growth, growth hormone, a diabetes medication, and what I believe to be a second hormone supplement. Um, you know, this, these articles that are coming out aren't giving 100% of the details. Um, so at the end of the year of research that they did on these nine test subjects, uh, they found that the subject's DNA um, were on average 2.5 years younger than their previous biological ages. Are you already confused? Because it is a little confusing. So let, let me get into what I'm actually saying here. So this means that over the course of the test year that the subjects were taking the medication and they aged chronologically another year, but their biological age, as I will explain how is it that is determined in a second, their biological age seemed to decrease by 1.5 years, which if you add it to the years, the year of testing, it's 2.5 years. So anyway, let me get into what's actually going on here. So before the medication was administered, the test subjects had their DNA examined for common signs of aging that biologists call epigenetic clocks. So they're using these markers that, that are found on human DNA. And over a, a human's lifespan, DNA acquires these certain chemical tags that are found riding on top of the double helix as we age. And as an example, one of these tags is made up of uh, a carbon and a hydrogen atom stuck together, and they, they stick to the outside of the DNA strand. And these these tags, scientists believe, can alter how a particular part of a genetic piece of information is read. And that's what they think one of the reasons why we have a, a, an actual physical effect of aging, that we, the reason, one of the reasons why we actually age could be that these epi, epigenetic molecules are sticking to the outside of our DNA and causing it to be, I guess, misread. You can think of these epigenetic changes or chemical tags as flags that demonstrate a person's biological age. So they will look for these chemical tags. They will see a certain arrangement of them, a certain frequency of them, and the scientists have a way to determine a person's quote-unquote biological age by doing this type of examination. And they say that it's as accurate as a two- to three-year range, which is really accurate and a little bit scary. Yeah, but that also means that the outcome of this study is within the error bars. Yeah, that and, and look, which means that it could have done nothing. There, there, nobody is saying here um, that they're a hundred percent sure. They're only sure about one thing, which I'll get to in a second. Mm -hmm. So this early test does not prove that the test subjects actually became biologically younger, meaning that they actually grew to become younger. The scientists are trying to figure out if the epigenetic clocks are the cause of the aging themselves, or if they just operate more like an after effect of the aging process. Do, does that make sense, guys? 
Yes, because most of the yeah. things that we measure like that, are, that's what they are. They're markers that are just an effect of the thing that we're looking at, not the cause of the thing, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm sure there's a lot of things that happen in aging that doesn't mean that it's causing the aging. And that's actually one of the questions they're asking. Are we looking at something that's actually you're responsible for aging to some extent. Or the res or the result of aging, right? It's or just one of the probably many markers of aging. Yeah. It's kind of yeah. like you could kind of think of it as an accumulation of scars that you get on your skin as you walk through life. Now, the scars aren't making you older. They're just, they're the result of just living a longer life. You get more scars. Yeah. Okay. That's a good, good analogy. Uh, what they really did was they first identified the, the biological epigenetic markers that attach themselves to DNA. They were like, okay, we know that these exist, we know how to read them, and we know that they're pretty accurate in determining somebody's biological age. They, they administered the drugs for a completely different reason, but then when they went back and tested blood samples and took DNA uh, tests of those blood samples uh, after the, the uh, one-year drug regimen was over, they saw that some of those epigenetic markers were gone. Or changed yeah. in a, in a, in what they would read as a, as a younger person's biological age. So that's it. And that's all they're claiming and all the headlines that you're reading, you know, that it, it, nobody knows exactly. Like nobody appeared younger. Nobody like, you know, the only thing that they noticed, and this was the one thing that I was going to tell you, Kara, was mm -hmm. they were testing part of the immune system. And they did find that these medications specifically rejuvenated a part of the immune system. And actually, more tissue was actually present after the study than before the study. Oh, uh, that scares me. That sounds like a precursor to cancer to me. No, well, no. Was, you're, talking about, you're talking about the thymus. The thymus, thymus yeah. The thymus functionality. There was, thymic, there was some thymic regrowth. The studies, though, the, the, this study was limited, and I'll tell you, I'll give you like uh, some things that you could talk to people about if they're saying that this is, you know, we're all going to live forever. So they were saying um, <laughs> that work has to be done to disprove the actual effects of the drugs, to prove or disprove. So as an example, there was no control group. There was only nine test subjects, which is amazingly small. And if the participants made any other positive lifestyle changes, they did not take that into account. So they don't which know. Which I'm sure they did in a study like this. Well, I'm not sure, but that's well, not it's uncommon. Common. It's common. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They went off that heroin, you know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the other thing yeah, that they, they did say was night. six months after the test was over, they resampled uh, blood samples of six of the people that did the test. And the positive, the quote unquote positive effects of their uh, epigenetic markers was still there. So whatever it did, it did make a change that was lasting at least six months after the test. My biggest concern with this is, yes, the sample size is small. Yes, there's no control group. Those are massive issues. But also, how much did they baseline test? Did they do a single sample? I, I think that their baseline testing is the only thing that they could possibly use to, you know, but how long do they do it express for? But that's results. what I'm saying. Like, did they also do six months prior to starting? Because Well, what this, what this test is going to do, though, because again, and like I said, this, the initial test, the, the whole project here wasn't based on this. This was just another thing that came out of it. So now, of mm -hmm. course, they will move on to specifically design a much more robust test and be able to dig in to, to more detail and actually, you know, they'll do it, you know, much more uh, correctly. I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't say they did anything incorrectly. They just didn't have that. No, they just got to do more. They got to do more subjects. Yeah. They got to do a better baseline. They have to do a longer yeah. follow-up. They need 
more subjects in a double blind, you know, placebo controlled arm. And they also need to test more things. So what they need to do is also is validate this marker as meaning something. In other words, yeah. does it predict like your the risk of dying over that yeah. period of time? That would be a good well, thing to correlate it with. And also compare the other epigenetic markers that are established. Like, did it do anything for histone length? Did it do anything? Sure. I'm sorry, for, you know, for loss of histones. Yeah, not, sorry, I didn't um, mean histone. Not histone. I didn't mean telomeres. I actually meant hist. Okay. Yeah, but that's not what I mean. Now, Kara, another... One of the biggest epigenetic marks of aging is actually losing histones. Yes. And so, like... How is their histone count? Like how how you know yeah. like and maybe yeah look at telomeres look telomere at other length types of histone count yeah um, things like now that. there was another cool thing that I, I didn't say Kara but there was one one other yeah, yeah. side effect that uh, <laughs> one of the test subjects had they, some monsterism the, the, the guy was able to shoot <laughs> lightning from his fingertips oh see yeah, like now, that's why you're excited yeah so this you know. <laughs> It's a little scary, and he did seem to get more wrinkly in the face every time he shot the lightning out of his fingertips. So <laughs> his voice got a little hoarse. It's a little, yeah. it's a little scary. Red. Yeah. So no, but but again, you know, I know. Look, as soon as I read the the headline, I'm like, ooh, ah, oh, ah, oh. you know, like I got a little excited. And as soon as you read the headline, I was like, um, womp womp womp. <laughs> <laughs> this is such such an early study. The probability of this turning into anything is like less than 1%, right? Yep. That's basically at this stage. You have some marker, it's going to turn out to actually you know, be have therapeutic application. Very, very low. And it's going to take us 20 years to know or more, right? <laughs> Not 5 so, to 10. <laughs> We've moved on. Now, we're in the tw- this is definitely in the 20 years. 5 to 10 is like when you're at the phase 3 level, right? You're starting yeah. a phase 3 trial. This is sort of the 20-year mark. There's a lot to work out, a lot to work out with this. All right, Bob, let me, Bob, let me ask you a question. Okay. Have you ever heard of Red Mercury? Yeah, the the movie? What no, in science in Red science Mercury. fiction? I have, I have, uh, I have heard of that. What is Red Mercury? Red Mercury. That's a good question, Kara. So it yeah. is. <laughs> it's a. It's an essentially an urban legend that it has come around again because of social media. But it's it's a very interesting story. It, it goes back actually to the Middle East. Not really sure exactly how long. Um, it's 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 kind of like uh, it's a it's a cultural legend in some cultures in the Middle East. It's like the jinn, right? But the idea is that uh, it is a healing elixir that was Ooh. used by the ancient Egyptians, and the only way to get it today is from the mouth of an Egyptian mummy. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? I just Googled Red Mercury yeah. and it talks all about like nuclear waste. So I was right. Yeah. Science fiction. That's the second stuff. That's the, the second life. I'm getting to that. <laughs> oh, sorry. This is partly why it's interesting because it has its origin in a particular culture and is tied in with, you know, a lot of their cultural beliefs. And, of, and it's this notion, you know, that the ancient Egyptians have this sort of mystique and the, and, Whatever is associated with the mummies, you might think there was some kind of mojo going on there. Um, and so, and anything that has even the whiff of, of healing about it, then people are going to oh, immediately yeah. get very, very interested. So, yeah, so Red Mercury had this sort of initial urban, leg- urban legend life as this healing elixir from ancient Egypt. And uh, Westerners heard about it mostly from archaeologists who have had to fend off people who were 
prospecting for this red mercury in mummies tombs, you know? So like people were trying to get, get it from, from Egyptian mummies and they had to fend them off. That's how we and, came to learn about it. And therefore, but in the 1970s, a, a separate red mercury urban legend or myth developed and hmm. it's unclear what the relationship is with the original red mercury healing elixir legend the story you know the, the properties are completely different you know, it's on it's whether it was just a coincidence that they used the same term or that um they that people used that term because it already was out there as kind of this legendary mythical material all right, so this this red mercury was supposed to be a very, very, very high-energy chemical compound, literal mercury, that um, was combined with antimony and then irradiated in the core of a nuclear reactor. And when you do that, you know, this according to the legend, you get this very, very high-energy chem- chemical compound that could be used— in order to make it to used as a very, very small trigger device for a nuclear bomb, either a fission or a fusion bomb. So so by making a very, very small trigger, this could basically create the possibility for a briefcase fusion bomb. Suitcase nuke. Yeah. So that that was the fear. Uh, But also it could just be used as a dirty bomb if you had combined it with some uh, radioactive material, or it could just be a high explosive unto itself. There was a lot of interest in obtaining red mercury by terrorists. And that caused the intelligence agencies in the West to take it seriously because we had to figure out, okay, is this real or not? I found an article in the New Scientist from 1995, basically debating whether or not red mercury is a real terrorist threat or is it complete nonsense and quoting different experts with opposite opinions you know some saying it's nonsense others saying like this could be a real threat to civilization you know if this thing mm. if this is, gets out uh, it's possible that this was a hoax that was committed uh when the soviet union fell right um mm. although the the idea already existed but imagine the, the Soviet Union is collapsing, and uh, there was definitely a lot of profiteering going on at that time. So, if you were a you know uh, on the inside in the Soviet Union, you could tell you know people around the world, yeah, this red mercury stuff's real, and it was made by the Soviet Union, and now we could get access to it because you know the, the Soviet Union is not keeping an eye on things anymore. There was actually a real fear, you know, when the Soviet Union collapsed that. That what would happen to nuclear, the nuclear weapons, weapons and nuclear and material, nuclear material. Yeah, would find mm-hmm. their way. And sort of this whole red mercury hoax rode the coattails of that fear. And then it, and then people started like selling fake red mercury for incredible amounts of money, like hundreds Shh. of thousands of pounds, British pounds for like a, a vial of it, you know, very, very expensive. Yeah. There's another angle to this that's very interesting and that it's possible that Western intelligence agencies used the offer of red mercury as their own sting operation to mm-hmm. flush out terrorists, right? That, that yeah. I could believe. Yeah. So pretending to be somebody who's selling red mercury and then a terrorist comes to you to buy it and you got him, right? So that was the idea. But of course, that perpetuated the urban legend. It perpetuated right. the myth. It lent, it lent it credibility. 
And now Red Mercury is getting a third life, which is the sort of the newsy item recently on social media. Uh, there's You could actually find YouTube videos online where people show you how to make it. But it's just, you know, apparently right. all you need is mercury, lemon juice, and cheesecloth. And you could make red, quote-unquote, red mercury. But it, what they're showing is, you know, so you could you could... Be, you can fake red mercury in a few ways on video. You could just because merc, real mercury is silvery; it's re, highly reflective, and so if you have anything red above it, it will just reflect that red red color or the red light and look mm-hmm. red. Or you could just put dye; you could put red dye into the mercury itself. Isn't it kind of dangerous to be like messing around with mercury? Yeah, and if you look at the videos, they're wearing gloves, which which does I don't know if that's just for the the drama or if it's because they're actually using you know a little a little bit of mercury. But yeah, mercury is toxic. You shouldn't be playing with it. Uh, or you could use video effects. And there are some videos yeah. out there. This is sort of another angle. So, so it's really interesting how this legend is morphing over time from a healing elixir to a nuclear material uh, and now to like this magical substance. Uh, so there are, there are videos online purporting to show that red mercury has no reflection in a mirror. <laughs> Why? Which, of course, is just a very simple Dracula. video thing. Yes. So there's oh, a vampire no. connection because there are some people oh, claim, so the, this is how the, the legend morphs, that red mercury can be sourced from bat nests. Of course, bats don't have nests, so that's a problem. But that aside. <laughs> that um, aside, though. <laughs> and so once somebody made the connection to bat, then vampire bat, bat? Then vampires... Yeah, that. Huh. And so if it, there's a connection to vampires and you can prove that connection by showing it doesn't have a reflection in a mirror. <laughs> so that's the, the, the latest incarnation of the morphing of this legend of red mercury, oh, uh, which probably Whoa. does not exist. It's so sad too, isn't it, Steve, where people have these like heuristics in their head where like depending on how steeped you are in lore and stuff, if somebody were like, to just say a few words about it and throw in some of those buzzwords in their heads. They'd be like, yeah, that checks out. Yeah, right. Yeah, bats, blood, vampires, all, they all kind of exist. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. Uh, now, of course, there is uh, a red mercury-based mineral. Does anybody know what that is? Cinnabar. Yeah. Cinnabar. Yep. But it's solid. I've heard of Cinnabar. Yeah, it's a solid. It's not liquid. But it has nothing to do with this. It's just, you know, that's, yeah, sure, there's some mineral that contains mercury that's red, but it's not this stuff. So anyway, non-existent a, fascinating, a fascinating tale of something <laughs> that doesn't exist. And of course, this all reminded me of red matter. You guys remember red matter? That yeah. was from Star Trek. Trek. Yes. That was the, the terrible. The movie relaunch. Oh, gosh, they mined it. Very dangerous stuff, man. Material. Don't mess with it. Tell me. Oh, just well. so it's crazy. So yeah, they so Spock. Had this glob of red matter, which was a which was a liquid mercury-like red substance, which is sort of a similar kind of vibe to it, that had properties so that you could sort of create a singularity with a drop of the stuff. Ooh, get this, Kara. He used it in order hmm. to stop a supernova from destroying the galaxy. Huh. Well, that's good. Makes a lot of yeah. sense. Which makes yes. a practical, yeah, application. Sense. practical and also, application. And also vampires. And also vampires. That's right. Of that's course, Spock, no Spock had no reflection. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> <laughs> the conspiracy deepens. 
Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, KiwiCo. KiwiCo creates super, super cool hands-on projects, and these projects are for kids, and they make learning about science awesome. If you get a KiwiCo subscription each month, the kid in your life, now this could be your, your daughter, your son, a niece, nephew, could be your, you know, your older uncle who thinks he's a kid, anybody, <laughs> they will your receive, next door neighbor. right, your neighbor, your friend, <laughs> they will get an engaging, fun project, which will help them develop their own creativity and confidence. The projects were developed by a team of designers that are in-house in Mountain View, California, and they've been rigorously tested by kids. And remember, you can get a KiwiCo project for literally kids of all ages. We're talking there are projects for toddlers all the way up to really cool, more difficult projects for teens. Hey, Bob, I'm buying for you the walking robot. Yay! (laughs) You can use this robotics kit to build a walking robot Play with mechanical motion through robot building and experimentation. It includes a step-by-step video tutorial, illustrated blueprint instructions for the, for the project, all the materials you need, and a special edition of Tinker Zine Magazine for even more fun. KiwiCo is offering the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids of all ages, visit KiwiCo.com skeptics. That's KiwiCo.com skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. All right, all right, let's go on to some real science news. Evan, tell us about crystal healing. (laughs) (laughs) Best segue of the night. The other day, I read an article in The Guardian, Guardian Online, titled, Dark Crystal, the Brutal Reality Behind a Booming Wellness Craze. By the way, Mm -hmm. there's the Dark Crystal reboot. Wait, they rebooted the Dark Crystal? Yeah, Dark Crystal as a series, as a TV series. Is it Jim Henson still? Is it? it, Well, Jim Henson is dead, but it's his production. I know, but his company. Yes, it's all with puppets, and although there's a little bit of a CG overlay just to make it a little bit less puppety, and it's really good. It's gorgeous, actually, and it's it's a prequel. It's actually a prequel to the movie. Uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's super it faithful to the look and feel of the original movie and the sound. I mean, it's it's almost identical. Yeah. And that was one of the reasons I was drawn to this headline, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> Dark Crystal, obviously, the movie from 1982 and Henson and Frank. So it's a very clever title to use for the article. And then subtitle describing the brutality of the wellness craze of crystals, or as we're fond of saying here in America, crystal healing. So... What is crystal healing? Well, here's what the Guardian article says about it. Believers say crystals conduct ambient energy, like miniature phone towers picking up signals and channeling them onto the user, thus rebalancing malign energies, healing the body and mind. So that's about as deep as they get, but there's more to it than that. Here's the rest of the pseudoscience of it all. The belief that crystals have healing properties is a form of energy medicine which we have talked about quite a bit on the show. Crystals can contain, they can amplify, attract, or repel different kinds of energy. And energy medicine in general, we're not talking about any kind of real energy that can be identified or measured by physicists. Mm -hmm. So the energy referred to in energy medicine is purely metaphorical and mythical. And -hmm. it's also sometimes referred to as spiritual energy. You may hear it referred to in that context. Can't be measured by science, but apparently it does have effects in the rest of the measurable world. Therein lies the contradiction. This is why it's an 
an extraordinary claim. This is why it's pseudoscience and why it's nothing more than a belief system. Mm-hmm. It's faith. Now, Evan, faith healing with crystals, basically. Is this what people push around when they do Reiki? Yeah. I believe, yes, that is right. Yeah, Reiki yeah. is also an energy medicine based thing. So is acupuncture. So is straight chiropractic. And oh, okay. All yeah. part of the same. Yeah. It's all spiritual energy you can't detect. You know, Can't detect it. And if you look online, some cursory searching for crystal energy or crystal healing, you can see what they're describing. Now, it's not only scientifically unfounded, but how they describe these things are, I think, rather childish and overly simplistic when trying to tie in the physical characteristics of the crystals to the powers that they claim to have. For example, rose quartz, commonly used for attracting and keeping love as well as protecting relationships. Well, that's because it's pink. And pink is a color of love. It is. Oh, wait, wait. This is really starting to make sense now. <laughs> That's right. But beware the obsidian crystals. Ooh. Well, don't beware them. You need them to protect you from shadows. Ooh. Addictions, fears, anxiety, anger, all these black, and ugly stuff. white walkers. Don't forget white walkers. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I almost, almost forgot that. Must have your obsidian crystals around. So it's it's kind of childish the way it goes. Something so ridiculous must be considered fringe, right? An outlier of society. Belief that only people from a less scientifically advanced time would fall prey to. Uh, no. Because according to Pew Research Center data no. in 2018, more than 60% of U.S. adults hold at least one New Age belief, such as astrology or psychics. 42% think spiritual energy can be located in physical objects such as crystals. 42. That is disturbing. Mm-hmm. And I'll explain. And, it, and, it, it, and more about this article makes it even more disturbing. You know, we've seen a rise in this, especially lately, kind of the last eight to 10 years. We've covered several, we've covered several stories on the show Describing examples of how, especially in the United States and a lot of Western cultures, they're abandoning more traditional forms of religion and religious identification, but at the same time, they're embracing more New Age beliefs and practices, astrology, Mm -hmm. psychic abilities, and crystals and crystal therapy. They're they're seeing a resurgence and ascension, and this is where the, the Guardian article kind of takes a closer look at it. Evan, Check this you, out. Could, you could find websites that will tell you which crystal you should use according to your astrological sign. <laughs> it makes, it doesn't get more scientific than that. Evan. In a way, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> that, right? Pseudoscience begets more pseudoscience. Why not? You know, There's plenty of room on the pile for it. I, all. I would have been rich by now, guys. I know. Jay, you totally would have been rich. Hashtags for crystals and hashtag healing crystals. Tens of millions. Yeah, I came up with this idea when it was like a year before we started the SGU. I'm like, all right, I'm going to make a website where that recharges crystals. And I built it. It was done. (laughs) Recharges them. The website was completed. It was done. And and Steve had a very severe, I don't say severe, he had a very heart to heart (laughs) with me, like, (laughs) don't do this. And I'm like, yeah, but Steve, they're going to spend their money anyway. Like, why shouldn't, you know, why can't I have that money? You know, like, or why, or why not like divert all of that money to like embryonic stem cell research, Kara, or like something that'll really help the world? So many good things would have benefited from me becoming rich ten, ten years ago. <laughs> oh, there's a crystal shop like in my old neighborhood. I just recently moved, so I don't mm-hmm. walk by it anymore. What, what, what goes on in there? Well, it's like they sell crystals and like dream catchers and shit, and they're. <laughs> 
I walked by it with my my very good friend who happens to be really into this stuff. And there Uh-oh. was a gift card in the window. And it said, like, I love you even though – or, like, I love you because you don't mind that I'm into all this woo-woo bullshit. And I was like, that's so us because I really love my friend and I'm constantly trying to like get her out of it. But at the end of the day, I have to just love her regardless of the fact that she believes in all this woo-woo bullshit. Oh my gosh. I There are a couple of people in my life as well, Kara, who mm-hmm. absolutely, absolutely believe in crystals and crystal power. Hook, line, and Pyra- sinker. Pyramids as well. It's pyramids. Oh, no. Yep. The thing about this particular Guardian article, getting back to the article, is that although they don't really go into this deep dive about the, the, the bunk of crystals and crystal healing, they take a look into the actual trade, the actual market for these things. And how the heck do these things get from remote parts of the earth onto the shelves and into the stores of where we can buy them here in America and elsewhere? So it's scary, and it reads like something out of the movie Blood Diamond, to be perfectly honest. And they go to Madagascar. Madagascar, large island country off the east coast of southern Africa. Also one of the poorest countries in the world. But it has lots and lots of minerals and crystals. Rose quartz, amethyst, citrine, uh, labrador... Uh, Labradorite, and among others, some very popular ones that we see and buy here in the West. Uh, gems and precious metals were Madagascar's fastest growing export in 2017, up 170% from 2016. Mm. So in just one year, whoa. Uh, they are along, among the other nations such as India, Brazil, China, these really you know large industrialized nations, Madagascar is right alongside them as far as a key, as one of the key producers of crystals for the entire world. But it's human bodies rather than machinery that pull the crystals from the earth. The people are the beasts of burden. More than 80% of crystals mined in Madagascar are mined by small groups of people, families with no regulation, and they're practically paid nothing for their labor. It is so poorly regulated The mining locations are out there in remote areas of what are already remote areas of the world, far from the eyes of authority, from health officials, and from humanitarian groups. These countrysides are run by gangs. They rule the areas using ruthless tactics such as theft and intimidation and rape and murder. So this is the environment in which these mines exist. And they are terribly unsafe. They're prone to collapsing Workers become buried alive to die. They can't always get them out. People are seriously injured in landslides and dirt avalanches. They have little to no protective clothing, these workers. They don't wear masks. They're barefoot. They're constantly breathing in dust and rock particles. They become sick. They're exposed to higher risks of cancer and silicosis. And that is, and the longer they try to make a living in these mines, the more subject they are to it. Child labor. Child labor is widespread. U.S. Department of Labor and the International Labor Organization estimate that about 85,000 children work in the mines of Madagascar. Ew. And it's a particularly nightmarish scenario for children because in some cases, think of this, they are lowered in by ropes into holes in the ground, which are barely one meter in diameter. And they go down as far as 25 meters below the surface to scrape and dig by hand. Oh, man. 
which in a space which I would generously generously define as claustrophobic. I mean, to me, that's the stuff of nightmares. I, I, it's hard to even imagine it. No, no shaft support whatsoever. Literally, just a hole in the ground, and in some cases, nineteen tons of soil and rock above you, suspended only by its own natural cohesion. Cohesion, and at any point, these things can collapse. So, when we talk about what's the harm, we talk about belief mm-hmm. in nonsense. We remind people every day that there's a huge cost to the belief in the ridiculous and the non-scientific. Crystals may seem like harmless, or at least it's my body. Who else am I hurting by believing that crystals have healing properties? Well, you only need to peer down, I think, one of these black holes in the grounds of Madagascar to get your answer. Pseudoscience can kill and cause tremendous suffering, not just to the person trying to make use of the nonsense, but all the people and steps it takes to deliver these dangerous goods to our shelves and our markets. Yeah, but I mean, I would say, though, that is a distinct problem because, you know, there's nothing wrong with collecting minerals. I love to collect, you know, gems and gemstones, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But, you know, yeah, we definitely have to address the issue. It's like the conflict-free diamond thing, you know, trying to like, be conscious about where your where your gems are being sourced. Unfortunately, most of these semi-precious stones are being sourced all around the world in, in, in uh, these kind of lawless places. But what do we do about it? You know, even if yeah, there, because even if you there also, wasn't a crystal healing culture, there would still be a market for these. We just and the be, thing is, you want to support is. industry. Yeah, you just want to also support regulation and and you know, obviously civil rights. And right. So that's wanna, that's where the conflict really comes in. We know it's relatively clear how to stay away from blood diamonds now it's relatively clear not to buy rubies now like we know certain things but it's hard i guess um as a consumer to really understand that i mean you're not gonna think about rose quartz like this yeah exactly or just quartz quartz. it's everywhere yeah Yeah. like where did i get but i do i do think though like if you if your industry is based on pseudoscience then i do think that's a setup for problems like we talked about the traditional chinese medicine market Mm -hmm. trafficking and in parts of endangered animals like pangolin mm-hmm. scales or the supplement industry trafficking in contaminated and adulterated products. You know, it's, yeah, there's probably, if your whole business is a scam, you're probably not worrying about where you're sourcing your raw material. You know, I think that's, yeah, that's really right. the problem. Yeah. All right, Bob, tell us about this massive neutron star. Yes. The biggest neutron star ever has apparently been discovered. It's so big that some think we may never find one bigger. So are they correct? If so, why or why not? Uh, This was recently published in Nature Astronomy. We've talked about neutron stars over and over and over. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're not really stars, right? They're kind of corpses of stars. Beautiful and fascinating, but still pretty much burned out cinders in many ways. Uh, But they are still amazing, city-sized uh, with the mass of a sun or two squeezed into that tiny, tiny volume with gravitational effects and behaviors that are just mind-boggling and, and still very, very mysterious. So uh, the name of this uh, neutron star is kind of long and boring. I won't even say it. I'm going to call it Fred. Uh, Fred is <laughs> Fred. Fred is 4,600 light years from Earth, and uh, it emits radio waves and spins 289 times per second around its axis, and like that, that makes it. That makes it a pulsar, of course. The really fascinating part of the story, though, is not not just its its huge mass, but the method that they used to determine its mass 
was especially interesting. I hadn't heard of it before. So kind of um, put your imagination uh, goggles on. Uh, we've got it's a binary system. It's not just a neutron star. It's a binary. There's another player here, and it's a white dwarf. Uh, the white dwarf and the neutron star were orbiting each other, and it also was nearly edge on. So the, the the orbital plane was pretty much edge on to uh, to the astronomer's eyes. So then, so you have this white dwarf orbiting around a black hole, essentially. And every four days, um, it would kind of uh, finish an orbit, or so every four days, it would kind of come between us and the neutron star. So that's that's kind of critical. What happens when that in this very specific scenario is um, you have what's called a Shapiro delay. When the white dwarf was between us and the neutron star, the gravitational the effects of on space time um, around the white dwarf impacted the radio waves coming from the neutron star behind it, okay? And that would actually delay just by a little bit the, uh, the, the pulsar's radio waves from hitting the Earth. And the delay only amounted to about a t- a t- one ten millionth of a second. So very minor, very tiny, tiny delay. Unless the the white dwarf was between us, there would be no delay. But only when it was between us, you, you'd have this delay. So what that delay would give us is the the mass of the white dwarf, because the amount of delay is directly related to the mass of the of the white dwarf. And so now we have the mass of the white dwarf, and that would then give us the mass of uh, the other partner in the binary system, because that's a relatively simple calculation. If you have one mass and you know about uh, the you know the binary system and, and its orbit, you can then calculate the mass of the other object, which is the neutron star, uh, which is what they did. So that was the technique, very uh, fascinating technique, apparently very very accurate. So when it was all said and done, the mass was calculated to be 2.14 solar masses. So the neutron star had the equivalent mass of uh, 2.14 of our sun in terms of in terms of its its mass. Um, so, uh, big deal. What, you know, what is 2.14? Actually, that's a very interesting number because as far as we could tell, as far as what our theories are telling us that the maximum mass that a neutron star could have is 2.16 or probably maybe closer to 2.17. So this bad boy was really, really close to having the amount of mass it, it needs, the maximum mass it could have without Turning into a black hole, okay. So, and mm-hmm. and that's because and that's because of degeneracy pressure. We've talked about this a few times on the show. Uh, real quick, once you you know once you get past um, you know once you get past say two point one seven solar masses, then the neutron degeneracy, the neutrons together uh, are are saying you you know you can't go any farther than this. It's pushing back, pushing back. But when you have more than two point one seven solar masses. The neutron degeneracy pressure gives out, and that's the last thing that's, that was holding back that mass from becoming a black hole. So once you go a little bit beyond that, bam, you go into a black hole, you have a singularity and all the beautiful, wonderful, mysterious things that happen with a black hole. And you essentially, you're leaving the universe, right? I mean, the, 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 the neutron star is great because it's so exotic, but it's a real thing in our universe that we could learn about. A black hole is, you know, is, uh, is hidden and it's mysterious and some things that we will never ever, uh, you know, penetrate the veil of the uh, event horizon. So it's, it's a major, you talk about a major milestone there. And uh, this neutron star is really, really, really close to it. Uh, so close that if Jay threw a meatball, uh, at Fred the neutron star, it could collapse mm-hmm. into a black hole. And of course, that's completely wrong because it's not just a meatball. 
Uh, Jay's meatballs are big, but they're not that big. What you would need is a meatball around one three hundredth the mass of the sun to tip over Fred the neutron star into Fred the black hole. That's a big meatball. That's a big That's a spicy meatball. meatball. <laughs> now, Bob, it's, does it matter like if I put any pork in this meatball or does it just have to be beef? <laughs> with, like, give it to me straight. Mass is mass. None of that, none yeah. of that matters. Mass you you could throw marbles in there too. Oh, wait, wait. Are you, saying that, are you saying that pork in a meatball doesn't matter? What? <laughs> in turn, <laughs> black hole doesn't give a crap about it. Um, oh, the black so, hole. I got you. Right. Okay. So, that, so that, that amount of mass, 300th the mass of the sun, it's a lot and it's a little depending on how you look at it. Um, I think it's enough. Um, I think there's enough wiggle room here that we will eventually find another neutron star that will eventually will find one that is even closer, you know, 2.15, 2.159 or 6, whatever. I think – I hope we'll find one that's even closer and closer because I'd love to – because I would love to find the point where it's, it's so close that maybe we could even potentially catch it in the act of swallowing just a little bit more extra mass and, and seeing it reach the tipping point and become – and transition from – uh, a neutron star into a black hole. That would be amazing. But uh, but all of this is amazing, and that's what astrophys- why astrophysicists astrophysicists yeah reminds me of Jay's boy Dylan <laughs> physicist. What a great word. So that's what makes astrophysics so fascinating and valuable. It's really a laboratory in space that we will never really be able to truly recreate in a lab on the Earth. Um, it's the only way we can find out some of the, the this type of information. Um, and you know, until we you know evolve our technology for another couple millennia, and then we'll be able to just uh, you know recreate it in our heads. But until then, uh, we have to rely on laboratories in space. It's an amazing universe out there, and we're learning th- you know new things like this neutron star every day. And it's I just can't wait for the next news item. All right, Jay, it's who's that noisy time? Last week I played this noisy. Kind of repetitive, huh? Mm-hmm. A bit, a bit. Yeah. It is. It is a more of a on the a, the noisy side of a noisy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. So uh, Visto Tutti uh, wrote in and said, "Okay, it's an alarm siren, Wait, but I suppose you want name? more than that." Visto Tutti. Wow, awesome yeah. name. So I will say that it is the alarm at the Large Hadron Collider. That's funny. So let's say here he said, uh, you got to warn people that the tunnel is about to get, as the British would say, quite thoroughly irradiated. <laughs> so that, that would be a, a horrifying alarm noise. Listen to that and think of it as an alarm. Wow. Yeah, because um, yeah, it's yeah, like screaming at you. Yeah. yeah, it's like, what are you doing? Get out of here now. So Mark Constantine wrote in, Hi, God damn it! I knew that Sydney Subway won, but I thought it was too simple because I hear the damn thing every day. Uh, so anyway, this week it sounded like a lyre bird imitating a car alarm. That is not correct, my friend. Although I would not doubt that a lyre bird, if it heard that noise enough, could actually make a noise that sounds exactly like the one you just heard. But that's not... Uh, a a, uh, a cromulent guess, my friend. Yeah, but ab- about any noise, you could say it's a lyre bird imitating that noise. Yeah, and I will. I will difference? say, I w- well. The only thing is, is if the lyre bird does something so good that I have to play it on the show, I probably you know I'm just saying I'm probably not going to play a lyre bird imitation again. 
Because, you know, mm-hmm. I've already heard it do amazing things like chainsaws and camera clicks. But you never yeah. know. Another lyrebird mimicking noise might be worthy to get on the show. But unlikely. Uh, Richard Hosker wrote, Jay, this week's noisy is the sound of a screaming hamster running in a hamster wheel. Damn, that's a good guess. You are not correct. But it Can certainly does sound scream? like that. They certainly do. If they're Ooh. stuck on a wheel. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Every time. <laughs> so that's fun. we got so many weird guesses this week because it's such a weird noise. So we do kind of have a winner. This is this is close. So I'm going to give this person the win. This person's name is Brian, and his nickname is iPuppy. I don't know why. I think it's cute. He said, hey, long time, several time. I'm going to try to guess the noisy each week, and here it goes nothing. This sound is like the noise a weather fax machine on the bridge of a ship makes. The screeching is the data coming over the radio. The repetitive mechanical sound is the thermal printer head printing the image on the fax paper, or it's something similar, old telephone, fax machine, mimograph, or large format printer. So this is pretty close. So here's the actual answer, um, and this is coming from the uh, the person who sent it in last week. They said, hey, Jay, here's my suggested noisy. It's a recording of a bolinograph operating or also known as a wire photo invented by Ward... Edward Bellin at the first way to send photos by wire. He said, I uh, looked into this at his place of work. A university in Toulouse, France is on Avenue Edward Berlin and on the street name sign, it says inventor of the Bellinograph uh, or Bellinography. He's recently been getting into the podcast and thank you for listening. So what is this? It is the device that first was able to digitally send or electronically by some means send a photo from one place to another. So it is kind of, I believe, like a fax machine and kind of like a printer at the same time. But I could not find any video of this machine operating. And that is the unbelievably horrible noise that it made. (laughs) And thank God, like, we moved away from it, right? Imagine if that's what all of our office machines sounded like. (laughs) Well, you remember what it used to sound like when we dialed up? Yeah. That was, I did. (laughs) Kara, I might be romanticizing it, but I, I certainly did like those tones when, especially when it worked well. Beep, bam, bam. You know, like, there was something fun about it. Nope, not good. No, okay. <laughs> Man, it's like it's you think back then, like we lived through those years. We were there. We were we had the computers that were around at the time and the dial up and you had to use your phone line, oh. like you know, you it's like it was so inconvenient but amazing at the same time. I remember when like the first internet fun stuff started to happen and me and all you know, all you guys and my friends we were all like sharing these funny files with each other. We would go to each other's houses with discs and they'd be like, Here man, like look at this stuff I found, you know, and you'd like share like the, the booty from the past couple of weeks. Those days are long gone. Okay, so this week's noisy guys was sent in by a listener named Patrick Johnstone. And Patrick gave me a single clue that I am not going to give the audience because uh-huh. he, he did the surprise one where he sent me the noisy and then a, a file attached that is the reveal, mm. which you don't ever – you know for future reference, you guys don't have to do that. But if you want to, go ahead, but you don't have to. I did not guess what it was. I actually guessed completely wrong. And this is one of those noisies, man. It's, it's a toughie, but check this out.
Uh-oh. I don't know what happened at the end there. Anyway, <laughs> very, very fun and interesting noisy this week. Uh, so thank you, Patrick, for sending that in. If you think you know what this is, and if you heard anything cool this week, now, Carrie, you went to Africa. Mm-hmm. Like, where are my 25 noises per day that you heard over there that you could have just given me, like, the download of amazing sounds? What happened? Yeah, but people would know what they are. Yeah, but at least one, one animal making a weird noise that you wouldn't think came out of the mouth of that animal. Anything. Okay, I'll get you something. Thank you. You're welcome. I'll do, and you know what? When we do it, Kara, we'll do a special, like, Kara, who's that noisy as the uh, person who suggested it? And I'll, I'll wear a costume or something. I'll do something fun for you. And nobody will be able to see it. Right. But at least you, you would know. (laughs) Good. (laughs) So email me at WTN at theskepticsguide.org. Um, all right, guys, let's go on with science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Kara, you're coming off a solo win last week. Mm. You beat the I'm going to not have false confidence. Good. There's another <laughs> theme this week. No. The theme is dragonflies. Wow. What do you know about dragonflies? I don't think anything. Oh, good. Um, all right. Here we go. Three <laughs> items. Oh, good. Good. Yeah, that's Excellent. That's good. We'll see. We'll see what you, what you know about dragonflies. All right. Here we go. Item number one. Dragonflies may swarm in groups so large, numbering in the billions, that they show up on weather radar. Item number two, of the over 7,000 species of dragonfly, a few dozen have venomous bites or stings, but none threatening to humans. And item number three, dragonflies are voracious predators, and the large ones have been reported eating hummingbirds and other small vertebrates. What? Oh, Kara, that sounds like you want to go first. (laughs) (laughs) that's why i don't say shit (laughs) i know i think that the i think that dragonflies have swarmed to the extent that they've shown up on weather radars i feel like this happened recently in la but it wasn't dragonflies it was like ladybugs but i feel like i've read the dragonflies do that too but i could be wrong i could just be mixing them up with ladybugs but if ladybugs can do it why can't dragonflies 7,000 species. Well, but that's not that weird, right? But I always think of like numbers that high as being beetles. Right. Seven, that's dragonfly. That's very specific. That seems like a high number. And venomous bites, I've literally never heard of a dragonfly. Like you always think of dragonflies as being like the quote unquote sweet insects. Yeah. Like that they don't bite. So I don't know. That one, it, just like my 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 spidey sense says, maybe that one's the fiction. Um, they're voracious predators, and the large ones have been reported um, eating hummingbirds and other small vertebrates. Mm. Hummingbirds can be really small, and dragonflies can be really big. So I I don't know. This one doesn't. It sounds crazy, but the more I think about it, the more I think that one could be science. So I'm going to say the 7,000 with some being venomous is the fiction. Okay, Bob. So, all right. Swarming in the billions. I don't think I've ever seen two dragonflies together unless they were having sex. <laughs> yeah. Right? I've just never seen a swarm of them. Uh, but I haven't seen a swarm of locusts either, and I know they swarm. <laughs> so what is – so yeah. So when let's see. Let's jump down to three um, voracious predators. Yeah, 
that care makes a good point. I mean, hummingbirds can get small and they can get fairly big. So, and they can, I know they can maneuver like a mother. I mean, with those, with those four, like four wings, two sets of two, they are amazingly maneuverable. Um, so I could see them catching a hummingbird, I guess. But yeah, I'm going to, I'll have to do a GWC here. Um, 7,000 species seems high and I've just never been venomous and stinging. Wow. I mean, I, was, I thought they were just kind of cool and never anything that could do that to you. I'll, so I'll go that. I'll say that number two, 7,000 species and venomous is fiction. Okay. Evan. Yeah. I think I'm inclined to agree with Kara and Bob here. Um, few dozen have venomous bites or stings, but none threatening to humans. None of those few dozen is what you're referring to in that item, Steve, right? Yeah. Well, not, none, not, of the, none of the 7,000. None of the 7,000. Yeah. Okay, so that's that, that takes to that. Well, I, I kind of still feel like this one's the fiction. Maybe the dragonfly can't really get through your skin, kind of like a, what, a daddy long legs, right? They have poison, but they can't get through your skin, so... Technically, it does have venom that could affect you, but can it even get there? I think maybe it's something along those lines. You know, one flies in your open mouth, you're probably in big time trouble there. Um, and then as far as the other ones, the group's so large and they show up on weather radar. Yeah, I've heard lots of reports of different kinds of insects ha- having that impact on the radar. So I'm not surprised there. And then the large ones, these things do get pretty large in some places. And to eat a hummingbird, sure, I, I don't, I don't see why not. Especially because they do have venomous bites and stings, and and a hummingbird, you can get get through their skin pretty easy. So I agree, Kara and Bob. The venomous bites and stings is threatening to humans is fiction. Okay, although you just Don- used that, you used two to justify three, but you're saying it's a fiction. Use two to justify three. Yeah, you said that they are venomous. Well, (laughs) yes, but so sure I followed that. I don't think that quite scanned, but that's okay. You're saying all right. I am saying number two is the fiction, same as Kara Jay. Venomous. Okay. Uh, All right, and Jay. Well, I'd like to begin by saying that I read the three of these, and I don't believe any of them because it's all (laughs) unbelievable. So dragonflies swarming in the. Billions? What? I see one once a year. You, you only see I mean? one? Oh, you need to hang out at more ponds. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm not really. A, um, pool's good for me, you know. <laughs> the pond oh, or the pool. Yeah. yeah. I'll hang out. Um, with all right, Emily but I mean, pond. so here's my logic. Okay, I'm saying to myself, Jay, remember these are insects. So then, okay, the billions. Okay, yeah, especially after like they all mate. Then they all give birth and they're all hanging around the same place because they like to mate, mate and give birth in the same place, whatever, you know, laying their eggs. All right, but billions, wow. Okay, but they're insects. So I, I'll say that one is a, is a definite uh, possibility. The second one here about uh, having venomous bites or stings, but none of them threaten humans. I listened to what everybody said. I didn't know, like, first off, you could have got me just on 7,000 species. This biting and stinging, I don't know. I don't think they sting at all. I, I, I you know, like my instincts are telling me that these are not stinging type of insects. So that is a, a check towards me saying that this one is fiction. The last one, uh, the voracious predator one, I just, for some reason, I just don't picture dragonflies like flying around going, you know, like they're not, <laughs> they're not like slathering 
uh, like my puppy running around biting, you know, sheetrock. You know, they're not those kinds of creatures. <laughs> okay, dragonflies and the eating the birds and the wow. I mean, I'm scared of these bastards if this is true. I don't know, but everyone said it. I think I'm going to go with the group, Steve, because I don't think that they sting. And I don't think that they, they uh, yes, this one, that one seems to be the most fictiony of all of them. So I will say that. Okay, so let's take this in order. Dragonflies may swarm in groups so large, numbering in the billions, that they show up on weather radar. You guys all think this one is science, and this one is science. Wow. And yeah, I agree with you guys. You usually don't see like a swarm of dragonflies, even like in the summer next to water in their mm-hmm. environment where there's Never. a lot of – you see you see individual dragonflies or you see dragonflies mating. You know, they kind of make that – you know, that C kind of configuration, the head yep. to toe to tail thing. <laughs> That's the male using its the, the long, you know, tail as a sperm depositor. Let's not and get explicit female. here. We got kids. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they and they don't usually travel in swarms. But if the weather conditions are just right, they will tend to bunch up. And these bunches of these swarms can get really, really large. Uh, and they have shown up on weather radar. Uh, they may be also mixed in with other insects and not necessarily just 100% dragonflies, but they're primarily swarms of dragonflies. Very cool. It's intimidating. Let's go on to number two. Of over seven of the over 7,000 species of dragonfly, a few dozen have venomous bites or stings, but none threatening to humans. So there's a lot of elements there that could be, could be incorrect. You guys seem to think that 7,000 is a lot of species of dragonfly and that you're not sure that any of them are venomous. Or sting, although Evan is not sure. Yeah, I'm not 100 percent sure. All right. <laughs> so you, but you guys all think this one is the fiction, and this one is <laughs> the fiction. Yes. Yes. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Kara. Woo! You're welcome. Well, let's break it down. So the 7,000 species is correct. Oh, jeez, really? Damn. That's not a lot. That is not a lot. Guys. I know, Sounds but like, like it's a it's a lot. It's not a lot not, for an insect. It's not a lot for an insect. There's over a hundred thousand species of beetle. Oh, beetles! Well, beetle. Mm-hmm. Beetles. The king. Oh, God so is king. inordinately fond beetle of them. Champion. Yeah. But tens of, <laughs> tens of thousands is typical for many groups of insects. So seven thousand is actually not that much. Oh, okay. For yeah. for a group of insects, to be honest with you. You know what, what the closest relative to the dragonfly is in the same group with it? The, the um, damselfly. The damselfly. Oh, damselfly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you know what Don't the difference between a dragonfly is and a damselfly? Yes. A uh, number of wings? Nope. They, they all have four wings. Hmm. They, the, the females fly backwards. No. So dragonflies have rigid wings. Rigid they're, wings. There you go. Always, <laughs> I love that. Always extended. Damselflies can fold Tuck their wings back. Nice. Have, you guys, have any of you guys seen Carnival Row? No, I keep no. hearing about it. Is that a it, TV show? It's great. I love it. Yeah, it's a great show. Mm. Carnival Row, I highly recommend it. It's an alternate universe where there are fairies, right? And the fairies have four insect wings. They fly with a rapidly beating wings but they can when they're not flying they fold back down along their back so basically they have damselfly wings the fairies but anyway but there are no dragonflies that are venomous or sting so that's the part that's made Aha. okay mm-hmm. yeah they don't have stingers they they, they don't have they, stingers they're 100 they can... don't have stingers uh, and i could not find a statement anywhere that there are no venomous dragonflies but after i read as much as i could i could not find any mention of any venomous dragonflies 
and I, and I read you know entries that if there were, it would have said it. But still, I, would, right. I was looking for that magic phrase. There are no venomous dragonflies. I couldn't find it. But as far as I could tell, and I'm pretty confident from what the extent of that I read, there are. That's why I threw in the stings to make it a hundred percent fiction. And, but they are not threatening to humans, but they do bite. So they do have very oh. deadly mandibles if you're uh-huh. a bug. If you're and a if bug, you're very small. Or a, or a and if you're very small. Maybe. Even a hummingbird. Yeah, they, it's the big ones have these enormous mandibles, these big teeth. And they will bite you, though. If you capture a, a dragonfly and hold it in your hand, they will probably bite you as a defense mechanism. Uh, huh. And if it's, if it's a big dragonfly, it may actually even hurt. But it, it probably won't break the skin or draw blood. Okay, note to self, don't be fearless around dragonflies well, anymore. Dragonflies will not attack a human being, and they will not bite you unprovoked. But if you threaten them, if you capture one and hold it in your hand, it will probably bite you to try to get away. But you. But it probably won't even hurt. You probably won't feel it, right? But if it's yeah. a big mm-hmm. one, if it's a big one, it may... It may hurt. You may feel okay. a pinch. You may Whatever. feel a pinch. Yeah. Now, what do you recommend, gonna, Steve? Yeah. Harm you. It's not going to harm you. Wear gloves if you're going to capture these things. Yeah. No, Are you saying no. like that if they get too close, you shoot them with a shotgun? <laughs> no. What about that um that horrible uh, tennis racket thing you got me? Oh, the horrible. <laughs> yeah, that thing is amazing, zap- Kara. But I would so, never zap a dragonfly. I'm no, only going to zap mosquitoes, houseflies, and hummingbirds because <laughs> dragonflies are voracious predators and the large ones have been reported eating hummingbirds and other small vertebrates is science Yay. and Kara is right dragonflies eat in mostly insects you know it, like this is like rarely like a large one will occasionally take out like a little lizard or a hummingbird or something but you and then you could see pictures of it online and it's amazing like you see a picture of a, of a dragonfly that's as big as a hummingbird like holy crap that's awesome. They but they eat tons. They they just go through. They are voracious. They just they eat so many insects. Like, and, like bats. Yeah, they are amongst the most successful hunters. Uh, in turn, if you if you keep track of like how often they capture their prey when they go after them, what do you think their success ratio is? For when mm. whenever uh, they attack, yeah, I say uh, one in five. No, it's got to be higher than that because they eat so much. So they must be pretty successful. One in sixty percent, ninety-five percent, way yeah. higher. Ninety-five percent. They are among the most successful hunters, and and they they are they have a very sophisticated nervous system. So first of all, they have like really? among the best, if not the best, eyes in the insect world. Ooh, cool. They have the, the real like thirty, forty thousand facets to their eyes. Uh, they have the wings give them a- excellent control, as Bob said, but also their brains. That so recently, neuroscientists studying dragonfly brains have discovered that they have incredible ability to to focus in on their prey, and they can also like keep track of one fly or one insect in the middle of a swarm. So their brains can filter out everyone else. Like once they focus on their prey, their brain filters out everything else. So hey, Bob. Even, even yeah. in a swarm, they could keep track of that fly. Bob, remember in the movie Alien, the first one? Yes. Oh, yeah. And the android is, actually looks up to the, uh, the creature. Mm-hmm. You know, he admires it. Yeah. 
This is Steve. Steve is. This is Steve acting just like that android. Oh, right it's now true. It. But here, one more thing. <laughs> the dragonflies are really cool insects. Oh yeah. The other thing is they don't chase their prey. They, they stroll. They're very no, casual about it. No, they, inter- <laughs> they intercept them. So they their brains can oh, calculate the, the trajectories, distance, yeah. speed, trajectory, and then they take an intercept path. And they go where the the where their prey's going to be, right? They intercept its path. They don't just chase it down, um, and that's partly why they're so successful. Yeah, like you, yeah, you intercept the Mars. You don't chase it. Yeah, and and then what? When, <laughs> once they capture their prey, that the first thing they do is bite their wings off, um, so they're it's immobilized. Yeah. And then they generally eat their the insects that they kill. They generally eat them from the head down. Uh, and they just will, they just will constantly constantly eat. There was I read one report of a dragonfly that got caught in a spider's web, and then ate the spider. Huh. <laughs> That's wow! I'll learn you. Turn the tails on that. They are spiders. They are what the hell? Incredible yeah. predators. You're not incredible. Predators. I'm not trapped in here with you. You're trapped, You're trapped in, in here, here with, with me. me. <laughs> the Watchmen. That's a great. But, scene. Yeah, yeah. But it's funny that if you if you ask people like what the three nicest or mm-hmm. prettiest yeah. or friendliest insects are, they're butterflies, ladybugs. And dragonflies. And dragonflies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, they're they Those see they're pretty. Yeah. They're beautiful. I love them. I know. I yeah. love Judge them. an insect. All right. Well, that's it. I'm going to stay away from them. Cephalothorax. I guess. And Kara, <laughs> I am never going to eat a dragonfly meal or flower. Okay. I don't think they make that, so you don't have to worry about yeah. it yet. I've never yeah. Wait. The, well, is not there, that there are probably some yet. cultures where they do eat dragonflies. Oh, I imagine. I speak, so, sure. So, but I don't think you can like protein buy dragonfly flower on the shelf right now. It's mostly crickets. Okay. And you can so find online, you can find websites for how to attract de- dragonflies to your property. Whoa. Yay. Um, yeah, but it's basically you make a little pond and you put little fish in there because they actually will eat little fish. Here's the other thing. The dragonfly larvae, also voracious killers. They will, they will eat fish. Oh, my God. The larvae themselves. Yeah. Yeah, these things are hungry. Okay. Um, now, imagine, imagine back a- in... The Prehistoric, era, yes, yeah. when they were the size of bats. Oh, when, you know, <laughs> when the dragonflies were massive. Of a bus, yeah, quite well, a bus, no. but no. I'd like to think that back then they had Cockney accents. You know, right. at least one of you laughed. Why? Thank you, Kara. You don't care. <laughs> I missed you. You were when you were gone. There was like this was a humorless show. There's it a was, void. It was there was okay. nothing going on. The largest <laughs> dragonfly discovered had a wingspan of 710 millimeters. Why do they have to? Why don't they just say an inch? You know, <laughs> seven. That's seventy you want, centimeters. You want that? that's, <laughs> no, I'm just converted. joking. That's tr- that's thir- that's about twenty. Thirty inches. inches Thirty inches. <gasps> oh my god! Wow. That's enormous. <laughs> Get that thing away from me. <laughs> that's no, not good. That's beautiful. Jay, that is totally out of the movie Caveman. Like yep. for real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Totally thinking about yeah, that. Yeah. Totally. Jay. And Jay, you would need a shotgun at that point, probably. That right. No, at the, at that point. At that point, you're, you you got to. You would need a shotgun. It would with Kara. What if there were billions of them? Oh yeah. <laughs> Showing up on okay. prehistoric radar. I mean, gosh. that's true. They would yeah. eat you. They would just eat you and carry you away. Mm-hmm. You walk outside one morning, and one of them's driving your car. You know, then you'd wish you had that tennis racket. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Who's laughing yeah. now? That would be cool, though. Could you imagine seeing a meter long dragonfly? 
Driving a awesome. car, yeah. Only if I'm behind six inches of uh, transparent aluminum, yes. Yeah, oh, right. <laughs> It'd be cool on TV. I, you know, I'm I'm kind of happy we live in a small insect world. Okay. <laughs> I think big bugs are really cool. I'm always so excited when I see them in other countries. Oh, like, we don't have you're right, other you know, countries. Gosh, Cara I, did, I you know, notice Kara didn't say whenever I see them in my bathroom. She yeah. said in other countries. Yeah, exactly. Living in LA, I don't see that many really big bugs, and it kind of bumps me out. We do have some oh, periodically. Yeah, you got some. Sure. But like I follow a friend from South Africa on Instagram and he just posted today that there was a whip scorpion in his garage. It's nope. Insect ground. No, I'm thanks. like, that's so cool. That's no, that bug that I put on my face when I was in the Amazon. Oh, you the face. The face Kara, bug. you want to go to Madagascar, they have the Madagascar hissing cockroach. I know. Those are awesome. <laughs> that those are like five to seven centimeters. Ugh, there's so many cool big, big bugs, like especially in Southeast Asia. So I'm hoping that I'm going to go to Indonesia at the end of this year, and I want to see some really big bugs in Indonesia. Yeah. Fingers crossed. I like big bugs, and mm. I cannot lie. <laughs> I knew you were going to go. <laughs> All right, Evan, give us a quote. Hey, Steve, I'm flipping the script tonight. Okay. I, I proposed a quote. I'm changing to a different quote. Oh, oh, here we go. An unapproved quote. And it's a quote from Evan's wife. It's, get the hell out <laughs> of the bathroom, the you, you bastard. <laughs> Jennifer Bernstein. <laughs> what are you doing in the bathroom day and night? Why don't you get out there and give someone else a chance? Lost. <laughs> bam, 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 bam. Just trying to remember that quote. Oh, nice. I'm combing my hair. Uh, <laughs> all right. So this is a quote suggested by a listener. Adam Mullis from Iowa. And I'll read the email, and then I'll read the quote, okay? Hi, Evan. I'm a graduate student in chemical engineering at Iowa State University, studying nanoparticles that improve the potency of existing antibiotics. Cool. Cool. I came across this quote on the Chemistry World podcast, and I thought it fit in with the medical misinformation theme that comes across frequently in the show. It's attributed to the FDA commissioner's decision during the banning of Laetrile. Here it is. The Laetrile proponents maintained that even if the drug did not work, people should still have the right to take it because they deserve freedom of choice. But the, what? But the sellers of Laetrile did not offer a free choice. They persuaded cancer victims, desperate and dying, to buy a drug that did not work on the basis of false hope. Only informed choices are free. Yep. Awesome. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Laetrile. That's a good quote. Yeah. Oh boy, the whole Laetrile story. Have we oh ever have, have we talked about that on the show? We have, we have, but maybe we could come around again. You know, if it ever pops up in the news anywhere, we'll we'll, we'll readdress it. But yeah. So I thought that was a That's fantastic. That's old school. Yep. Old school. Thank you, Adam. All right. Well, thank you, Evan. Thank you. Thank you all for joining me this week. Sure, man. Pleasure. Right. Pleasure. And until next week, this is your skeptic's guide to the universe. <laughs> Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. And don't forget about KiwiCo. KiwiCo projects are designed to spark creativity, tinkering, and learning in kids of 
all ages. They make learning about science, technology, engineering, art, and math fun. They're on a mission to empower kids not just to make a project, but to make a difference. KeepCo is offering the Skeptic's Guide listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids of all ages, visit kiwico.com slash skeptics.